0: Welcome to MS Masters. Multiple sclerosis can be challenging to diagnose and to treat. The good news is there are more options than ever for your patients with MS. The challenge is an overflowing cornucopia of information that can be difficult to digest. MS Masters helps you stay on top of it all with expert presentations on key topics within MS. In our inaugural episode of MS Masters, Dr. Edith Graham of Northwestern University summarizes the current state of knowledge on the use of disease-modifying treatments in women who wish to become or are pregnant, including IVF treatment and the postpartum period.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Edith Graham. I am a neuroimmunologist at Northwestern University, and today we will be discussing pregnancy and multiple sclerosis for our topic for the MS Masters. I have no disclosures, but I will be discussing off-label use of treatments Our first case is a patient who we will call Emily, who is 34 years old. She has a history of depression and she came to our clinic with acute sensory transverse myelitis. Her symptoms began with numbness that progressed from her stomach to her thighs and then to her back over a three-day period. As the numbness progressed, it became difficult for Emily to walk. On clinical examination, she has dysesthesia to pinprick from her breasts downward. This was her initial MR imaging. On the left, we have a sagittal view of MRI flare sequence and on the right, we have uh, sagittal um, stir imaging. There was one uh, perpendicular uh, periventricular lesion seen um, that was non-enhancing. She also had a new lesion here at the dorsal aspect of C3 here in the cervical cord. She does have two lesions in the lower thoracic cord and one at T8 and one at T10. So when we think about the diagnosis for her, and in fact, these lesions were not enhancing. So she does not have what would be kind of enhancing and non-enhancing lesions that we would typically look for for dissemination in time for this patient. Um, however, these lesions, particularly the one at C3 could correspond with her current lesions. So when we look for a diagnosis of MS, we need lesions that are separated in space in four different areas in the MRI. So those areas are periventricular, which must be tuc- touching the ventricular surface here. in the um, juxtacortical region, which she does not have, which again, must be touching the cortex. And the infratentorial region, which includes the brainstem and the cerebellum, And then in the spinal cord. So she does have lesions in two out of the four spaces. But given that she's only had one clinical relapse, um, we would have to rely on our McDonald 2017 criteria and obtain a spinal tap um, in order to see if she has oligoclonal bands, which can substitute for dissemination in time. So um, Emily's cerebrospinal fluid, in fact, did show 15 unique oligoclonal bands to her. CSF that were not present in the serum. Um, So she did meet criteria for MS. She was started on Tecfidera. A few months later, um, she decided that she would like to get pregnant and she was considering um, doing this via in vitro fertilization as she had been trying to get pregnant for several years without success. She was coming to us wondering what her options were in terms of continuation of disease modifying therapy um, one, while trying to, to get pregnant, but two, um, while she's undergoing in vitro fertilization. So none of these, our current disease modifying therapies are FDA approved in pregnancy. Any use of them would be considered off-label. We do use the um, pharmacokinetics that we know of each of the disease modifying therapies in order to guide um, our treatment strategies. So Tecfidera has a very short half-life and is eliminated from the body within one day. It can either be discontinued just before conception if uh, or trying to conceive um, if, if you want to be very safe, or it can be, in fact, um, in many cases, continued right up until conception. Um, it's unlikely in, to cause any fetal harm. There have been no case reports. And patients who have become pregnant and stop Tecfidera fetal malformations or other adverse pregnancy outcomes. She could continue that. She also could, and this option is not listed, but she could continue Tecfidera through in vitro fertilization, stop that as soon as she is able to conceive or even right at embryo implantation. Another option which is often favored is to switch to rituximab. Although this would delay her ability um, to get pregnant as soon as possible, because we need several months in order to achieve the rituxin to be eliminated from the body. So Tecfidera can be switched to Rituxin without any washout period, again, given the short half-life of Tecfidera and Rituximab, its half-life is around 20 days. So it's only around in the body for about three months. However, we know that the efficacy of rituximab does considerably um, last a bit longer, um, at least six months, if not in in some patients. They can have B cell depletion up to nine or even 12 months. So we like to use this property in patients who are getting pregnant because it allows for us to um, have conversations about being able to get pregnant around three months after their infusion. And we often extend this recommendation to ocrelizumab as well. And in fact, during the early portions of pregnancy and the, in the first trimester, um, there really is very little antibody crossing across the placenta. So um, even if there were still rituxan still in the mother's system, there would be very little transfer across the placenta. What do we know about relapse rates in pregnancy and multiple sclerosis? So of course, um, this is the initial study from 1998, PRIM study, um, which showed that there was an overall decrease in relapse rate through each trimester of pregnancy with the third trimester of pregnancy showing the lowest relapse rate, just about 0.2. However, there was a, a rebound in that first trimester after pregnancy and 28% of patients relapsed in the first three months after delivery. So when we look back at the relapse rates at the third trimester, I also wanna highlight that um, this is considered a 70% decrease in relapse um, compared to the year before conception. And while there was an increase in the relapse rate in the first three months after delivery, in months three to twenty-four, that relapse rate returned to the pre-pregnancy baseline. This study was published in um, just in twenty twenty-one, and is updated data on on the relapse rates during pregnancy. This included one hundred forty-five pregnancies. This was a study led by Dr. Riley Beauvais at UCSF, mm-hmm. the, and they showed that the actually the relapse rate and the first period um, or the first trimester postpartum was actually um, 17% compared to the pre-pregnancy relapse rate. So this was uh, lower than what was cited in the PRIM study. And um, a couple of theories could be at play here. So, so we, we do have better um, disease modifying therapies. So perhaps um, because patients have better control over their um, MS in the year prior to conception. And that's why they're having a lower relapse rate um, in the postpartum period. But also um, they did do a sub analysis looking at, ex- they excluded data before 2010 to see if it was that just the, the change in disease modifying therapy was affecting this. And they reported that uh, by excluding earlier data, they didn't find any difference. So, so basically they're saying in this cohort, the, the relapse rate is, is really not as high as it once, once was thought to be in the, in the period postpartum, which, which really may have implications on, on how we may prophylactically treat women in the postpartum period, whether or not postpartum steroids are necessary. I think it raises a lot of questions about when we may need to restart postpartum disease modifying therapy as well. Why is pregnancy considered protective NMS? Uh, CD4 T lymphocytes can differentiate into either Th1 or Th2 subsets. Th1 mediate allograft rejection and Th2 mediate more of an allergic response. Um, They also do inhibit the Th1 cells. So they are considered to be more protective in pregnancy. Looking at the top of the diagram, the extra trophoblast, or EVT here, um, is, is part of the placenta, and it secretes this hormone called soluble HLAG, and that actually induces a change. By secreting IL-10, it upregulates the Th2 response as well. Part of this um, immune tolerance that occurs during pregnancy is actually coming from hormones that are secreted from the placenta. Hand of the diagram. These, this more of an immune tolerant immune response is mediated by IL-4, IL-5, and IL-10. These are um, some of the disease modifying therapies um, that we use most commonly. And I want to remind you that any use of any disease modifying therapy through pregnancy is not approved by the FDA and is considered off-label use. However, we do have some data on how women have done throughout these pregnancies, and particularly some data from other countries to help and guide our use of disease-modifying therapy throughout pregnancy. Because at the end of the day, we have to have really frank discussions with our patients and really weigh the risks and benefits of use of each of these therapies. The only disease-modifying therapy that's considered pregnancy category B is glutirum or acetate or capaxone. However, typically most, most providers will stop this at conception anyway, given that the efficacy of Capaxone really isn't that much greater than the natural relapse reduction that occurs in pregnancy already. Interferons are typically stopped at conception in their pregnancy category C. Um, the fumarates, Tecfidera, Vumeridi, and Bifirtam, like I mentioned before, are typically stopped at or just before conception given the short half life. Um, Abagio is category X in pregnancy and must um, be eliminated completely from from the body using the rapid cholesteramine elimination protocol before pregnancy is considered. If a patient does get pregnant while on Abagio, then the rapid cholesteramine elimination protocol can be used during pregnancy. And then the sphingosine-1-phosphate receptor inhibitors are also considered pregnancy category C although I would not really entertain using these in any patient who is considering getting pregnant in the near future um, because of the risk of rebound disease with stopping them. Um, So really when it it takes these molecules up to two months to be completely eliminated from the body and um, so therefore you have to stop it at least two months before conception, but the rebound risk On average, um, with Gelenia, for example, comes at 40 days after stopping treatment. So, um, the last thing you want to do is stop one of these medications and then have a patient relapse, right, as they're trying to become pregnant. Typically, I I would favor switching to an alternate treatment and usually around two to four weeks after stopping one of these agents in order to uh, protect the patient before the lymphocytes repopulate and, and rebound. And therefore, you can not necessarily wait for that lymphocyte population to come back up, but catch them as they are coming up. And and just to highlight the category here of the fumarates, teraflutamide, and sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors, part of the reason why these aren't recommended to be continued during pregnancy is because they're all small molecules. So the smaller the molecule of the drug, the more likely it is going to be able to pass more easily through the placenta and and affect the, the fetus. In contrast, our monoclonal antibody agents. So here we have the anti-CD20 agents, um, ocrelizumab, um, ofatumumab, rituximab, natalizumab, and alemtuzumab. Those monoclonal antibodies are considered large molecules. Um, and again, they really don't cross the placenta in the first trimester and really increases throughout. So the most crossing would be throughout the third trimester of pregnancy. We don't have as much data yet on key symptoms, since it's relatively newer, but pregnancy outcomes with o- Ocrevus and Rituximab, we have data to show that there is transient decrease in lymphocyte counts in fetuses, but really only if they are administered within four months of delivery. So we have not seen that same effect in patients who are just receiving it at that three months prior to conception, um, so therefore are considered um, very safe at that point pre-pregnancy. And in fact, these agents, while they don't have enough data approval and we don't have enough data in multiple sclerosis in particular to be recommending their use throughout pregnancy, I will say that the American College of Rheumatology um, actually does um, say that rituximab is safe to continue throughout pregnancy um, and breastfeeding for that matter, same with some European studies. So while the data is limited specifically in the US, um, these are agents that are being used for other patient populations. And then natalizumab, it's a bit of a tricky one because um, again, we know that there is an association of relapse when discontinuing it. It's not one that I typically put on patient, I, I typically start for patients who are planning a pregnancy because I don't want to have to discontinue it right when they become pregnant. We don't have a lot of data on um, the effects of natalizumab um, continued throughout pregnancy. Um, There is some data to show that if there is an infusion within the last six weeks of the pregnancy, that infants can have a, a transient anemia and thrombocytopenia. And patients who do become pregnant on natalizumab, they may have aggressive disease or you're worried about inducing a relapse throughout pregnancy. Natalizumab can be considered to be continued throughout that pregnancy at extended interval dosing. So at six week intervals, and then make sure that The last dose is not any greater than 34 weeks of gestation. But in reality, I think if you're able to have a discussion with your patient in preconception planning, I would probably favor switching natalizumab to ocrevis or rituximab prior to that conception planning. Elmtuzumab, again, with the half-life and monitoring, we typically say that patients can get pregnant around three to six months after their last infusion of elmtuzumab look at how monoclonal antibodies could potentially affect pregnancy. So we don't have evidence that they increase risk of birth defects. Birth defects typically occur very early in the pregnancy when these aren't crossing the placenta. And then I typically like to remind patients that all pregnancies have a 3% risk of birth defects at a population level, regardless of what medications patients are on. And then to highlight use of assisted reproductive technologies in multiple sclerosis patients. So we don't have a lot of data on the outcomes of patients using in vitro fertilization, but we do have two studies from 2012. One was a prospective study with 16 patients that showed that in vitro fertilization, particularly with use of the GNRH agonists and recombinant FSH, increased relapse risk by seven times and the risk of new gadolinium-enhancing lesions by nine times. And then a retrospective study of 32 patients showed that after three months after use of in vitro fertilization, the annualized relapse rate increased from 0.8 to 1.6. And this again was associated with GNRH agonists um, and unsuccessful um, IVF, so failed IVF. Um, however, I think updated um, studies are needed because our current protocols are much shorter and we frequently don't use. Um, GnRH agonists. GnRH antagonists are actually more common. And we also um, continue disease modifying therapy throughout the controlled ovarian hyperstimulation portion um, and transvaginal oocyte retrieval, which through hormonal injection portion of IVF. And the studies that um, our data is coming from now looked at patients who were not on disease modifying therapy.
0: Are you enjoying this episode of MS Masters? If so, please be sure to subscribe to this and other Multiple Sclerosis podcast series brought to you by TheNeurologyHub.com. Welcome back to MS Masters with Dr. Edith Graham. Having discussed adjusting disease-modifying therapies when planning pregnancy, we now hear another case, how to adjust a disease-modifying therapy when a patient has an unplanned pregnancy.
1: So our second case is Um, a patient who we'll call June. Um, She's 36 years old and she developed painful vision in her right eye four days ago. She's also experiencing clumsiness in her right hand. Her visual acuity is 2040 on the right, normal on the left, and she has a relative afferent pupillary defect on the right. She does have some weakness in the right hand, um, four out of five strength in the finger extensors, interossei and abductor pollicis brevis. When she presents to the ED, they do get um, a pregnancy test, which is positive, and they confirm it with a serum beta HCG, um, which is, um, is in the 20s, which is, which is low, um, which means she's likely less than five weeks pregnant. She had an MRI brain and cervical spine without contrast, so we avoided the use of gadolinium, which has not been shown to be teratogenic in animals, but there's no safety data in humans, so um, it's typically avoided, although um, if absolutely necessary, can be used. There is a hyperintensity in the right optic nerve consistent with a right optic neuritis. She does have periventricular, a large periventricular lesion and some smaller ones, as well as a juxtacortical lesion here. And then she has a dorsal lesion at C3. Then looking at the brainstem, we do see that there is a lesion in the left brachium pontus um, on T2 flare. And one of the tricks that we can use in patients who um, cannot receive gadolinium is to use the the DWI and ADC sequences to look for restricted diffusion, um, which if present is highly specific for an active MS plaque. There is a rim of restricted diffusion uh, that is slightly darker here around the rim on ADC. Um, we do know that she has um, active and inactive lesions here now on the um, MRI. So June was treated with um, IV methylprednisolone one gram for three days, followed by 10 day prednisone taper um, with improvement in her symptoms. So we recommended that she had a repeat brain MRI in six months to monitor her disease activity. Um, So at that point she would still be pregnant, um, but to check in and make sure that she wasn't having ongoing disease activity, which may promote us to use other agents during pregnancy, such as IVIG. We could pulse steroids once a month during pregnancy, or even plan to have a a prophylactic steroid pulse or early initiation of a disease-modifying therapy at postpartum. She did want to um, breastfeed postpartum, so we did counsel her that exclusive breastfeeding, so without supplementing formula, does reduce the relapse risk postpartum, and that in order for her to have um, decreased risk of uh, relapse, we can give one gram of IV solumadrol once a month, and then since it's so short-lasting, she can um, then pump and dump for four hours after each steroid treatment. There isn't a lot of evidence about the benefits of um, IV solumedrol and and prophylaxis postpartum, but it is a common practice that is used. Then after breastfeeding, um, around probably three to six months of exclusive breastfeeding, then there would be a plan to initiate a disease modifying therapy. So what are the agents that we can use for, um, a relapse during pregnancy? So these are all considered category C in pregnancy. Um, So IV methylprednisolone um, can cause a possible increased risk of oral um, cleft and palate if used during the first trimester and low birth weight, but typically not a lot of the drug passes through the placenta because the placenta is able to metabolize methylprednisolone to inactive forms via 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. So less than 10% of that dose will reach the fetus. Oral dexamethasone, While it's sometimes used in um, pregnancy uh, or MS relapses, it's not used in pregnancy, (laughs) um, can cause a low birth weight, and it doesn't have that same metabolism by the placenta, so um, it's often recommended not to be used. However, I mean, there are cases late in pregnancy where um, dexamethasone is used to promote fetal lung maturation, but this hasn't been looked at in the same doses that we would be using for multiple sclerosis. IVIG, while it has no known adverse effects on the fetus, there's limited data in the use of IVIG and its efficacy for MS relapse. But if a patient also continues to have um, a refractory relapse to these above treatments, then um, you can use therapeutic plasma exchange during pregnancy. What are some of the things that we can counsel patients on about postpartum relapse risk? So we know that greater disease activity in the year before and during pregnancy doubles relapse risk in the first three months postpartum. Um, And that's uh, from from 16% up to 30%. And that's from the PRIM study. And then we also know that use of disease modifying therapies in the preconception period is associated with a 45% reduction in relapse risk postpartum. We know that breastfeeding is protective um, with an odds ratio of 0.3. Um, and that's from our recent data from the study by Dr. Beauvais. And um, we also know that use of natalizumab or fingolimod is associated with a higher risk of relapse postpartum because of that rebound effect. And then in the case of pregnancy loss during the postpartum period, we can consider using prophylactic monthly IV steroids, which would be compatible with breastfeeding as long as they pump and dump. So in summary, for patients who do not have well-controlled MS on their current disease modifying therapy and are looking to get pregnant, um, I would optimize their treatment first and um, have them reuse reliable contraceptive, contraception for at least six to 12 months before they try and conceive. I would be aware that the risk of relapse is highest in the first six months postpartum and particularly in the first three months. Um, I would avoid S1P inhibitors in women of childbearing age, and consider rituximab or ocrelizumab as the top choices. And um, remember to counsel patients that use of biologic therapy during pregnancy is associated with transient hematologic abnormalities in newborns. To know that it is okay to use IV methylprednisolone and oral prednisone for relapses during pregnancy. Um, but to be mindful of the risk of oral cleptin palate um, with IV methylprednisolone use in the first trimester, to be aware that in vitro fertilization may be associated with higher relapse risk, but that the studies that we currently have have not looked at um, use of disease modifying therapy throughout the IVF procedure um, and that our current procedures have changed. So I want to thank you for listening to our presentation today.
0: Thank you to Dr. Graham for sharing her knowledge with our listeners in this episode of MS Masters. And thanks to you, our listeners. Be sure to visit theneurologyhub.com for more podcasts in the field of multiple sclerosis. MS Masters is brought to you by the editors of the Neurology Hub and Practical Neurology.